This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. But I work for Jubilee Plus, and that's a charity that was started by New Frontiers to look at how our churches, particularly in the UK, could um, do more to tackle poverty in our communities and to support those facing poverty and injustice in our local areas. Um, We've been doing this for about 10 years, and we do it in a variety of ways. We've got a stand in the hub, so I won't tell you the ways you can engage with us now. You can just go to the hub, and you can pick up some leaflets. Um, actually, we've got a table here, so if you don't even want to walk all the way to the hub, you could just come here at the end and just pick up some things that we've got here. Um, I also work for King's Church in Hastings, which um, isn't part of Christ Central. It's part of New Ground, which is one of the other uh, families of churches within New Frontiers. And in my church in Hastings, I oversee communication and social action. Uh, we run about eight projects, which help the poorest in my town. Uh, the Daily Mail once called Hastings Hell on Sea. Um, which makes it sound like it needs a lot of help, doesn't it? We do have quite a lot of deprivation, but it's actually a lovely place to live. Um, But we've got eight projects where we're trying to do good to the poorest and the most vulnerable in our communities. Um, I just read a tweet about half an hour ago that um, I wanted to read to you. It says this. It says, um, had a Chinese this evening. The chicken was 235 The fresh egg noodles on clearance were 24 pence. All natural ingredients sourced 75p. Stir-fry veg on clearance, 55p. Seven minutes, total £3.89. It was enough for four people, so it's 97 pence each. Don't tell me we have food poverty in this country. It's just idleness. I thought, if ever there's a tweet that made me feel empowered to do a seminar about austerity and poverty, uh, that would be it. It's the reason we still have to keep talking about poverty in this country, the reason we have to always have seminars on this subject at events like this, is because there are so many people in our society who still actually don't think poverty is a problem. And, and they're not right, as I'm hoping I can demonstrate as we go through um, this morning. Uh, what I want to do today is look very briefly, to start with, at the biblical overview of um, why we need to care about those in poverty and those facing injustice. Then look a bit at the national picture, which I shall try to do in as um, non-political way as possible. Um, um, You know, not because I don't feel political about it, but because I think that actually whether you are right-wing or left-wing, whether uh, you want to stay in the EU or leave the EU, actually there's things for all of us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we need to be doing or we need to be active in, irrespective of our political persuasions. Um, And then we'll look at, well, what are some of those things? What can we be doing? Because many of us are in churches where we're doing more than we've ever done before. I don't know about you, but for me, that's certainly true. In my church, we are doing more than we've ever done before. And yet the need is rising. The need around us is growing. And so what do we do? Do we just keep setting up new projects? Um, What are we going to do if poverty gets worse in this nation, which I believe it's going to? Um, So that's kind of an overview of where we're going to go. And I'll leave some time for Q&A at the end as well. I'll be happy to take some questions. I think the Bible is explicitly clear that God's heart is for the poorest. 
I don't think if you if you read the Bible carefully, I don't think you can avoid it. It's everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. Um, Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of the um, famous evangelists of the um, 18th century, said um, there is no command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor. That's pretty strong, isn't it? No command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than giving to the poor. But actually, I think just even a cursory glance through the scriptures backs up that statement. You see it in the law, you know, the books from, say, Genesis to Deuteronomy, where we see God setting out specific provisions for his people in the fact that they are to not just let the poor fall behind. They're not just to leave people to fend for themselves, but there's an, uh, God has created in his society, it's supposed to be about community. It's not supposed to just be about individual, look after yourself. It's supposed to be about how we all interact with each other. And God set out specific provisions for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. They're kind of the examples that are given. Let me give you an example from Deuteronomy 15, where God says, if you live according to my ways... If you follow the laws that I've set out for you, it actually says this in Deuteronomy 15, there need be no poor among you. It's interesting, isn't it? Because often people talk about Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you. Well, I'll come to that in a minute. But actually in this passage in Deuteronomy, God says, there need be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. I think this is really interesting that it illustrates God's desire is for there to be no poor among his people. And we see it in all sorts of the laws that are out. I don't know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't really know much about God. I didn't know much about the Bible. And when I used to read some of these parts of the Old Testament, I just used to find them quite boring. I'll be honest with you, I didn't really know what they were about. I didn't really understand them. And I didn't really see how they were relevant. The more I dig into them these days, the more I see how beautiful they are. Because, you know, God cares so much about those that society would write off. And God knows our hearts and our tendency to write off people. He knows that my heart, actually, even though I run social action in my church and I get to speak about it and write about it, left to my own devices, my heart goes cold very quickly to the needs of those around me. And so God said things like, you know, uh, if you're a farmer... There's the law of gleaning. I don't know much about farming, but I understand that what it means is that when you go and you pick up your crops, some would inevitably fall by the wayside. And your tendency, if you need to feed your family or if you're running a business where you sell these crops, would be to go and pick up everything that fell to either maximize your profits or just have the most food you could have in your own household. But God says, don't do that. God says, don't. Leave whatever falls by the wayside for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, and for the foreigner. It's interesting, isn't it? Leave it. Let, let, let it be there for people who don't have enough. I think it's interesting, as we go on, I'll probably talk a little bit about stockpiling. You know, there's been in the news the last week, isn't there, about stockpiling. And um, in the event of a no-deal Brexit, how we're all going to need to make sure we've got enough food in our cupboards. Well, stockpiling basically means getting enough for yourself to survive and not worrying about everyone else. That is essentially what it is. And according to the laws that God set out for his people in the Old Testament, he says, don't do things like that. Don't go and gather up everything so there's nothing left for anyone else. Leave, leave some stuff so that those who can't afford it have food and can be fed. We also see in the Old Testament law the Sabbath year, where God says every seventh year all debts get cancelled. 
Isn't that amazing? You think about that. If, if you've ever been in debt, I was in horrendous debt um, about 15 years ago. And if I'd known, I'd just have to wait for the Sabbath year and it'll be okay. What, what relief that would have brought. And then we read about the year of Jubilee, which is why our charity is called Jubilee Plus. Um, the year of Jubilee in the Bible where God says every 50th year, all debts get cancelled. If you've had to sell yourself into slavery, then you get your freedom back because people would put themselves into slavery to survive but in the 50th year in the year of jubilee you get your freedom back and if you've had to give up land that's maybe been in your family for generations and you've had to give it up to survive you get your land restored to you imagine what it would be like to live in that society where you actually know that there is no kind of no hopeless state for you because hope is coming around the corner. If you knew that you only had to wait for the Sabbath year, you know that debt is one of the biggest causes of suicide in this country. Well, if you knew that you only had to wait a maximum of seven years before it was like a reset button got pressed on it, you would never have to contemplate suicide. There wouldn't be hopelessness. And so what God has done... And obviously this is a very, very quick overview. But in the law has set out, my society will flourish when you take care of each other and when the rich can't go on getting richer and richer at the expense of the poor. And the poor can never end up in a hopeless state because they'll know that freedom is coming one way or another through the laws that God has put in place. And I find that beautiful. Don't you think it's wonderful, isn't it? That God would so care that he would set in the foundations of his whole society that we should live this way with this community, with this. It's not just about me as an individual, it's about us all. And actually that means if you're in need, I'm, I should be able to help you or vice versa. I think also sometimes we miss it in um, the earlier parts of the Bible and some of the stories that um, a lot of what happens is about poverty and injustice. So even, you know, the story of Joseph, you know, where his brothers sell him into slavery um, and he goes and he's in Egypt and he rises up to prominence and, you know, I won't go through the whole story. But it's interesting that I often hear quoted that verse where Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. I hardly ever hear quoted the reason which is, well, I think it's in uh, Genesis 45, verse 11, where it's, Joseph says, otherwise you would have become destitute. Actually, God cares about our physical well-being, not just our spiritual well-being. God cares about how we're doing physically. God cared about the fact that he knew that there was this famine coming on the land and he sent someone ahead of time so that his people wouldn't starve. And actually, it wasn't just his people who benefited from it. Multitudes of Egyptians benefited from it as well, even though God knew full well that later on they'd come to oppress his people. But God cares about the physical needs of everyone, whether they're his child or whether they don't know him at all. God cares passionately about this. We see it not just in the law, but in the history books in the Bible. Again, in bits we can miss so easily. In Joshua to Esther, um, we see it, you know, David in 2 Samuel 9, his concern for Mephibosheth, his concern for this guy who's got no way to support himself. We see it in, um, many of us all know the story of Esther, where Esther, you know, comes to the king's court for such a time as this. And when um, the Jewish people are spared, when, when they've kind of victory has been achieved Mordecai who's been Esther's mentor for it all Mordecai says while we celebrate let's make sure part of our celebration is that we give gifts to the poor these are little verses in the Bible but they're everywhere they're spread throughout the whole Bible you can actually buy a Bible uh, called the poverty and justice Bible that highlights them all for you so if you're a bit lazy um, 
like I can tend to be, and you can't be bothered to find all the verses for yourself. You can buy the Poverty and Justice Bible, and you'll find you can barely turn a page without there being something said about God's heart for poverty, um, for those facing poverty and injustice. Um, Earlier this year, I was um, in my own private Bible reading, just reading the book of Job. And, you know, Job has all this stuff, and then he loses everything, and he has a wonderful family, and he loses it all. And when Job's friends come and say, you must have sinned, what sins do they accuse him of? Part of it is they say, you must have oppressed the widow. You must have not helped the foreigner. You must have held other people down in oppression. They, when they say that you must have sinned and that's why this happened, some of the examples they give are you haven't helped the poor. And Job, in his defense, comes and says, when he says, I am a righteous man before God, some of the things he says is he says, I've brought joy to the widow's heart. Isn't that amazing? I'd quite like to be someone who brings joy to a widow's heart. You know, um, Job says things like, I have cared about the needs of people. I've sought out people who are facing hardship and I've cared and shed tears about their needs. It's really incredible. Job is defending himself, saying, I have cared for the poor. I have cared for the widow and for the fatherless. And that's his way of arguing that he's lived a righteous life before God. So we see, we see this has been in the heart of God all through the Bible. And, you know, it's in the Psalms. It's in the Proverbs. It's in the Prophets. I'm sure you're well aware. Um, if not, then just head to Isaiah 58, Isaiah 61. Micah 6 verse 8, those sorts of verses, and you'll see that it is everywhere. And I could spend this whole session just going through Bible verses, but I'm assuming that many of you have come to this because you're already persuaded of it, and you probably don't need me to persuade you. But for those of you who maybe have come thinking, well, does, is this that important? That's why I wanted to do a little bit of the biblical foundation. I think one of the things that really strikes me is in Isaiah 58 where it says you can be doing all the religious things you like but if you're not caring about those in need you've missed the heart of God. Actually it's it's interesting because what God says is you know you you come to me with your worship and your fasting and your prayers and you say why aren't I answering you and he says it's because you've forgotten about the hungry. You've forgotten about the homeless. It's because you're not bothered about releasing chains of injustice. And that's mirrored in the book of James in the New Testament, where it says, what is true religion? It's caring for widows and orphans. They're given as an example to us. It's not to say that if you, this is sobering stuff. I always feel like I'm about the hungry and homeless that, well, you're doing all right then. No, it's, it's, that's just an example of God calling us to have compassion for those that have less than us, those that our society would write off, those that even a guy tweeting this morning would say, well, it's, you're just idle. You don't deserve help. You're just idle. It's not real food poverty. And I think if we don't, even if we ignore the whole of the Old Testament, we just need to look at Jesus, don't we? Really. I mean, we see it in the Gospels that Jesus starts his whole ministry saying, I've come to bring good news to the poor in Luke chapter 4. It's, it's not a sideshow. It's not something Jesus did when he got around to it. Jesus spent most of his time with those on the margins of society. Jesus spent most of his time with people that other people said to him, why are you spending your time with those people? Don't you know what they're like? Jesus knew exactly what they were like, and that's exactly why he spent his time with them. Jesus also says in Matthew 25 that how we treat the hungry, the homeless, the sick, the imprisoned, it's a mirror of how we treat him. 
this is sobering stuff. I always feel I feel a little bit apologetic when I talk about this stuff because I feel like if you if you take these verses in the Bible seriously, it's really sobering stuff. But I'm not going to apologize for it because it is what the Bible says and it actually is God's wonderful heart for those who have less than most people. So I mentioned that I'd come back to the fact that um you know, Jesus said um, you'll always have the poor with you. I've heard people use that as an excuse to not help people in poverty, which is kind of astonishing, really. But, you know, people are like, well, Jesus said you'll always have the poor with you, as if he said it in a, as a statement of resignation. Well, you'll always have the poor with you. Just do what you can. It'll be all right. Don't worry about it. There's nothing you can really do. But actually, people don't often quote Mark's gospel. In Mark 14, verse 7, you get the full sentence where it says that Jesus said, um, you'll always have the poor among you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. It's funny, isn't it? That, that bit hardly ever gets quoted. It's not a statement of resignation. It's not Jesus saying, you'll always have the poor with you. Oh, well, never mind. See, do what you can. Hope for the best. It's Jesus saying, you'll always have the poor with you. You can do good to them whenever you want. So, you know, get on with that when you want. This occasion right now, he was talking about that day. He's like, okay, you don't have to do it right this minute. But he's saying there's an expectation. And actually, the Jewish people around him would have known that because they had all these Old Testament scriptures. So the Jewish people around Jesus would have known that he wasn't saying, you'll always have the poor among you, don't worry about it. He was saying, you'll always have the poor among you, so you've got plenty of opportunity to do good. You don't need to sit around going, Jesus, please, do you, do you want me to help the poor? Are there any around me? There's plenty of people in poverty around us. Even in a nation like ours, there are people who do not have the basic things they need to survive. And... In some cases, that will be because of choices they've made. And in some cases, it will be no fault of their own. Now, even when we make bad choices, how does God treat us? He is merciful and he is kind. You know, in Luke 6, it says, Jesus says that God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. I don't know about you, but if I was making a list of the people I want to be kind to, the ungrateful and wicked would not be at the top of the list. They probably wouldn't even be on the list, even at the bottom of the list. But this is the merciful God that we worship and that we serve, where he is kind even to the ungrateful and wicked. And therefore, he has not treated us as our sins deserve. Aren't you grateful for that? But I know that my tendency, even though I have known the astonishing mercy of God on my own life, is to still be very judgmental towards other people. I don't need to do a training course on how to be judgmental. If they had a seminar here, stream here, you know, you can go and do a training track here while you're at Devoted to learn how to be judgmental and critical. I would not need help with it. I find that it comes quite naturally to me. I can look at the person in front of me who tells me, oh, this is, I did this and I did that and now I need your help. And I find it really easy to think, it doesn't sound like you deserve it. That's not an effort for me. But I feel like the reason God tells us that we need to love mercy in Micah 6 verse 8 is because loving mercy is hard. It's really easy to love the mercy I've been shown for me, but it's really hard for me sometimes to love the mercy of God for other people. If they're people I don't like, people I don't think deserve anything, people I think, well, you just made one bad decision after another. Why should I help you? But when I say things like that, I'm totally forgetting that I've made one bad decision after another. 
And God has been kind and merciful and compassionate. And yes, he hasn't left me where I am. Of course, he's, he's called me to um, make better decisions in the future. But he's helped me to do that and he's empowered me to do it. He hasn't just expected me to do it. Well, make better decisions, then I'll help you. He's, he's shown me mercy and kindness and grace. And then as he's shown me that, he's walked me on a journey of then learning how to handle my money well, for example. I use that one because that was a weakness for me. Like I said, 15 years ago, I was in really bad debt. I had um, a guy in our church who was a solicitor advise me to declare myself bankrupt because he said, I can't see any way that you're going to get yourself out of this mess. I was unemployed at the time, so I didn't have any income other than job seekers allowance. Um, and he said, I can't see. I think the best thing to do is declare yourself bankrupt. And my mum works for a bank. And my mum said, don't you dare, because she knew that obviously I'd have to live with that for years and years, the consequences of doing it. And because she was so opposed to it, I decided to wait a couple of weeks. And in that couple of weeks, I managed to get a job. And, you know, sometimes people talk about uh, the debt they've been in and they have these amazing stories about how money came through the door. I don't have any stories like that. I'm open to having them if anyone wants my address. Um, No, I don't. I'm joking, obviously. But I don't have any stories of miraculous provision in that way. But what happened was is I got this job and over the next six or seven years, God taught me how to steward my money really well and how to pay off my debt. And actually, that has been a way more valuable lesson to me than if it had all got paid off through a check through the door. It happens different ways for different people. So I'm just giving that as an example of actually the mercy and kindness of God wasn't that God said, sort yourself out and then come. It was God knew the horrendous debt I was in. And it was just a step-by-step walking. And in that time, I still made some bad decisions. But God was still merciful and kind towards me. I think our British society finds it so easy to say to people, you don't deserve help. You know, we're given these images in the media all the time, aren't we, of people who don't deserve our help. Headlines like baby number nine on the way for benefits mum. Or headlines like about skivers and scroungers. We see these headlines all the time where um, if you're just watching your news, reading your newspapers or, you know, on social media, you'll see it. You'll see things like that tweet I read isn't an exception. There's stuff like that on Twitter every day saying poverty is not a real issue. People just need to buck up their ideas, sort their lives out. But actually, we see deep poverty in our nation. And sometimes people have made bad choices. But sometimes, you know what? The system works against people. Actually, more often than not, um, one of the things I'm involved in in my town is a food bank that has seen a 118% increase in referrals since Universal Credit came to town. That's astonishing to me. Is How we're coping, you know, is kind of beyond me. We've got an incredible food bank manager who has managed to change some of the ways we were running things so that we've been able to kind of operate under the strain of that massive increase. We weren't a quiet food bank before that. We'd had four pretty static years, but in those four static years of food bank referrals, we gave out the equivalent of 40,000 meals a year each year for four years. We're now giving out over 94,000 meals a year. And most of the people we are seeing have not made bad choices that got them in that mess. 
Most of the people we are seeing are just falling victim to circumstances. Even if it's just the fact that the cost of living has gone up and their wa- they haven't had a wage increase. We're seeing so many people coming to us who are in work and in poverty. You know, we keep hearing, my MP is Amber Rudd. Um, I'm not trying to be political in saying this. I've got a good relationship with her. But she keeps putting out um, employment figures and saying employment's the best it's ever been. I have no doubt that that is true and that is good but actually, in-work poverty rates are rising faster than the employment rate. So actually, it used to be that being in work was a way out of poverty. Now, it's no guarantee at all. You can be working full-time and still be living in poverty in this nation. God cares about this stuff. Some people argue that the Bible says that we should only care about the poor among us. I don't think that's true. I do think it's interesting, however, that in Acts 4, it says that, um, you know, the believers were all together and it says there was no needy person among them. I find that really interesting that in Acts 4, we see the fulfillment of what the verse I read from Deuteronomy 15. So remember in Deuteronomy 15, God says there need be no person in need among you. But actually, we don't see that come to pass until Acts 4, when among the believers, it says there was not a single needy person among them. Now, in that society in the time, um, historians and sociologists reckon that in any Roman or Greek city or town in the time that the book of Acts was happening, there would be 50%, of people either in poverty or living right on the edge of poverty. So imagine that. Imagine if in, if in every community around us, Half the people were in poverty or were were literally a moment from it. And yet, in the community of God, no single person is in need. Wouldn't that be a radical testimony to the world around that actually our God knows what he's doing? And when we live in a way that follows him, actually we can set an example to the whole world. So I do think it's very important that we don't have needy people among us in our churches. And, And I think one of the things that we can do going forward is be aware of the personal call on our lives to solve people's problems because many of us kind of can I do this you can comfortably sit behind a project and you can think well we're doing care for the poor because my church has this project or that project some of you might be legitimately involved in those projects and be like yeah I'm doing this stuff because I'm, I'm involved in this project I've heard people in churches who say, well, you know, I'm caring for the poor because my church runs this project. And then it turns out they've never done a shift or they've never even given a tin of food. Or, and, and I've got some people who I know who have been very honest and said, I've realized that I'm talking about it as if I'm doing it. And actually, personally, I'm not doing it at all. I think God will always call us to do stuff personally as well as collectively. I think it's both things. We're to do it as we're to be the local church which is the answer to the problems in our society. But as individual Christians, there's a call on us to solve problems for people as well. So I had this situation recently um, where a woman in my church came up to me and she was telling me about um, her credit card debt. And she was saying to me, I am just like, I'm overwhelmed. I don't think I'll ever be free of it. She said, what I'm paying off um, each month isn't even denting the interest, let alone getting anywhere towards paying off the actual debt itself. And while she's saying all this to me, I was thinking, in a minute, I'm going to pray for her, because that's the godly thing to do, right? And I felt God say to me really clearly, don't you dare. I was like, 
this is all going on in my head while I'm still talking to this woman. I was like, what? But God say, just lend her the money interest free. You know, in the Old Testament, it says when you lend money to people, don't charge interest. I felt God say, you lend her the money interest free so she can pay off her credit card um, and then, you know, pay you back at the rate that she decides. No interest. I said, no. No, I can't do that. You know those annoying conversations you have with God, right? I was like, there's no way I can do that. But I'm still talking to this woman at the same time. So I decided I'd ask her, how much is it? And then she said the amount that was the exact amount that I have set aside in the bank for if something goes wrong with my boiler or my car or something like that. You know, it's really annoying when that happens, isn't it? Like, I'm just being honest with you. It did not thrill me. This, I was not happy about this. Um, and anyway, I said to God, I can't. You know, I bought a flat a couple of years ago. I, I was saved out of poverty. And so for me to own my own flat is like, I've arrived. I've become middle class now. I'm joking. It's not, but it's, it's a huge responsibility. I t- you know what I mean? Like, I never thought I'd own my own place. And now I own this flat. So I'm like, God, I've got to be sensible, right? You've got to understand, God. I've got to be wise. And I can't just be giving away the only bit of money that I've got set aside. You know, I felt God basically just say, it's not your money, though. And that's really annoying because there's nowhere to go with that. Like, I'm not going to win that argument with God. And you know what? Like, I felt then God say to me, you speak about this and you write about it all the time. Will you put your own money where your mouth is? Okay. There's no choice really, is there? When God says something like that to you, what are you going to do? But I'm telling you this story because I, obviously I did give her the money in the end, but not to say, hey, look at me, I gave her the money, but to say... Our hearts don't want to be generous. You, you might be really godly. You might be really generous. My heart doesn't... I, God has to help me a lot with this. But God was saying to me, you know, it's all well and good. You can run all these projects and you can um, speak on a platform and you can write books about poverty, but what about your money? Can I have it? And my first, second, third, fourth, fifth answer was no. No. But probably, I don't know, I wasn't actually counting. But I reckon by the time I got to number six, I said to God, okay, fine. So I turned to this woman and I said to her, oh, yeah, I'll lend you the money. I doubt I said it with joy. I'll be honest with you. I don't think, I don't know. I've, I've since had to tell her this story so that I could share it publicly because obviously she had no idea what was going on in my head. And she said she wouldn't have known how reluctant I was. So I managed to fake it on my face when I was talking to her. So I said to her, oh, you know, I'll... Um, lend you the money interest-free and you tell me the terms of repayment you can take as long as you like. You, you, you know, I, I want you to tell me what, when you will repay it, but you, know, you can decide when it's going to be. This woman like, totally welled up and she said, I've been struggling with this for ages and I've not told anyone until today because I was so ashamed of myself. She said, people in church aren't supposed to be in debt, are they? She's like, I feel like I'm the only one. I was like, my church has got about 500 people in it. There's no way she's the only one in debt. But she said, I felt so ashamed. And she said, the fact that the first person I've told has responded to me with kindness has just made me realize in an instant, God isn't condemning me and beating me and telling me to sort myself out, but he wants me to be free. And it was powerful and it was amazing. And what I thought in that moment was, I was so close to standing between this woman and what God wanted to do in her life by saying no. So there's a call on us to do something personal and to, to not just see this as something our churches do, as, as vital as that is. Our churches must collectively, I am all for the local church, so please don't mishear me. But also please don't leave here thinking, well, as long as my church is doing stuff, we're all right then. 
because actually God is calling us to push deeper into generosity and mercy and compassion. Because you know what? Our society would say to people, like my friend with the credit card debt, you made your bed, you've got a lie in it. God has never, ever said that to any of us, has he? He's never said it to any of us. So likewise, of course we want to help people um, be wise. Of course we do. But so often we use that as an excuse to do nothing. Have you ever walked past someone begging in the street thinking, well, I would give you money, but I don't know what you'll use it for? Because we think I've got to be wise. But actually, God calls me to be generous. If I give someone money, what bit's God holding me accountable for? He's holding me accountable for have I acted like Jesus? Not what they've done with what I've given them. God will hold them accountable for that. I feel like some, I know that one of the questions I'll get at the end is probably something like, are you seriously saying, you know, that we should just give to everyone and we shouldn't? You know what? I'm, I'm not saying that. I do think there's a right place for wisdom, but I think we often confuse wisdom and cynicism. They look very like each other sometimes, and there's a very fine line between them. And sometimes we call it wisdom, but actually we're just being cynical and hard-hearted. And I'm saying that because I'm knowing that's what happens with me. I find it easier to let myself off the hook from helping other people with just a little bit of hard-heartedness. And I don't need help to be pushed into hard-heartedness. What I need help is to be pushed into mercy. So I'm sorry if it's a bit controversial what I'm saying in some ways, but I feel like if you're anything like me, where we need pushing is towards mercy, not towards wisdom stroke cynicism. So I was saying that um, some people think that it's only the other Christians that we should help. I think the Bible, you know, like I said, God spared the Egyptians from famine through Joseph. Um, the same provisions were made for foreigners who were poor through the Old Testament law. We see God's care for people outside of the family of God in the stories of people like Ruth. Um, we see it in, in terms of his care for entire people groups like the Ninevites, who he sent Jonah to. to. Um, in Isaiah 61, I think there's a clear trajectory that it's not just um, that no one in the family of God should be in need because it talks about once such has got nothing to say or what it has got to say, it talks about them becoming oaks of righteousness. Becoming, not being an oak of righteousness to get free of your poverty, being set free from your poverty and your oppression and becoming an oak of righteousness who goes on to become a rebuilder, a renewer and a restorer of long devastated places. When Jesus talked about the Good Samaritan, that story transcended ethnic and social barriers, didn't it? It, it wasn't about just the family of God. Actually, if anything, it was, a, it was a shockingly offensive story because it wasn't just about the people of God. The good person was a Samaritan who would have been despised by the Jews. The early church was known for helping the poor outside their doors as well as those within their doors. And actually, Peter says, um, well, Jesus says, first of all, people will see our good deeds and it will lead them to glorify God. And then Peter repeats it when he says, we might be accused of evil, but actually those around us will see our good works and they'll praise God as a result. And that seems to me a little bit like what the church is like at the minute, isn't it? That people may accuse us of evil in some regards with some subjects and some issues in our society. They may think, well, the church has got nothing to say or what it has. Society says we don't like it. We don't want to hear it. There's no place for it. But actually, many in our communities are seeing our good deeds 
and it is leading them to ask questions about Jesus. It is leading them to ask questions about, well, why is the church doing this? How come the church, what's that all about? What have these people got about them that they're doing? They're giving so many volunteer hours. You know, Jubilee Plus, we did a survey a few years ago, and we estimate that churches in this nation of all denominations are, um, there's about a million volunteers week in, week out, helping the poorest in their communities through church-based social action, and that churches are spending over £400 million a year in this nation to tackle poverty and injustice in our communities. It's astonishing, isn't it, really? That, because what other organisation is there on its, that could be doing that level of volunteering and that level of funding at the same time? It's amazing. You know, the national picture at the minute looks pretty bleak. There are 14 million people in poverty in our country at the moment. Sorry for those of you who are outside the UK. Some of these, well, I think all of these stats are very UK focused. But obviously there's poverty in every nation. And in some nations there's abject poverty that is horrendous. In our nation at the minute though, there's still people saying there's no poverty here. When actually it's a fact that there is astonishingly shocking poverty for the fifth richest nation in the world. There are 14 million people living in poverty. That's about one in five of the UK population. And what that means is that there are one in five living where they can't afford the essentials that they need to survive. So there's actually like a checklist you can go through. And it's things like some of these things in other nations of the world wouldn't be on a list. But for our nation, I think we'd all agree it's reasonable that people should be able to have one, one coat they can wear in winter. That's, that doesn't seem unreasonable, does it? That you should be able to have a coat. Owning a toothbrush seems legitimate to expect that everyone in this nation could own a toothbrush, doesn't it? So they're not things, you know, um, obviously it's food, it's shelter, it's um, living in accommodation that has heating. It's things like this as well. But then some of the things that you might be surprised about is access to the internet. Do you know that's now a human right? according to the United Nations. And the reason is, it's funny, like, people say all the time, well, you know, these homeless people or these refugees, they've got mobile phones. Well, I don't know about you, but if I suddenly found myself in poverty, the last thing I'd give up would be my mobile phone. I would hold, it would be my connection to people around me. How am I going to get a job? Um, I've got a family member at the moment who refuses to go online, which is an age thing, not a poverty thing, but um, is trying to look for work and can't find any work because everywhere's like, well, email us or go online and look at our website and then fill this out. You know, internet access actually, while it might not be a traditional marker of poverty, in this country it's actually very difficult. You can't even be on universal credit now without internet access. So you can't even get benefits without internet access. So internet access and things like that are important. So this one in five are people who are living without those sorts of things that I've just mentioned. Um... The Joseph Roundtree Foundation, which is one of the leading charities in the country for um, looking at poverty in depth and suggesting solutions to the government, um, in December 2018, they said that the number of people who are in work and in poverty at the same time um, has gone up by half a million people in the last five years. It's half a million people who are working who cannot make ends meet. The number of children in poverty is also rising. In an average class of 39 will be in poverty. I think that's really shocking. And I think we're becoming, as a nation, a little bit desensitized to how shocking it is. Because we're just hearing this stuff all the time and it's just numbers. But if you think about that, think about the fact that... So among the working population, 
it's estimated that one in eight are in poverty at the moment. So if you think about your colleagues where you work, for those of you who've got eight colleagues, that means that someone you know, I mean, it could even be you, obviously, but someone you know is, is living in poverty. I think one in eight in work in poverty is shocking. And it matters. You know, it really matters to the heart of God. The number of children in poverty is rising. So at the moment, it's nine in a class of 30. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies predicts a 7% rise by 2022 in children in poverty in this nation. You know, one of the reasons this matters is because if you grow up in poverty, it affects your chances of almost everything in life. Every bit of research that's done into child poverty in this country will tell you that if you grow up as a child in poverty, you are likely to um, not do so well at school. Your educational attainment will be lower, or maybe lower. Your life expectancy even is expected to be lower. Your job prospects are lower. Your health expectancy you're more likely to suffer ill health, and that's both physical and mental health. Actually, if you are a child growing up in poverty in this country, it is the single biggest influencing factor on every aspect of your life as you grow up. And so the reason this matters is because often, once we see adults in our churches in poverty, you know, we, we wonder how they got in that mess in the first place. But we don't seem to necessarily make the correlation between the fact that if you grow up in poverty, it's very, very difficult to get out of it. Because, like I say, every, every aspect of your life is likely to be affected. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, if a five-year-old ran in now and said, I don't have enough food to eat, please will you help me? I reckon all of us would rush to that child and all of us would want to do something straight away. But if a 45-year-old ran in and said, I'm hungry, will you help me? I think some of us would want to ask some questions first. We wouldn't be as quick to help. And it's, it's interesting because it almost implies that there's something magic that happens to you on your 18th birthday, where if you've grown up in poverty, suddenly you hit 18 and we expect you to have all the responsibility of someone who's grown up, all the um, kind of understanding, knowledge, behavior, life skills of someone who's grown up not in poverty. And it's weird, isn't it? Because it's not like you wake up on your 18th birthday and suddenly that's happened to you didn't happen to me I grew up in poverty and I can tell you it's I'm still working through some of the life skills I don't have now and it takes it's a journey it's a long journey I think one of the issues with our churches is that often we want to see the quick fix we love the testimony don't we of someone who was an addict and then God delivered them instantaneously you know, um, I used to smoke and people used to come up to me all the time, um, other Christians, and say, oh, I was prayed for and God delivered me. And I used to think, well, oh, bully for you. Like, how is that helpful to me in any way? Because <laughs> it obviously hasn't happened to me. No, I'm not. Obviously, that's wonderful when those testimonies do take place. But actually, we're in a quick fix society that tells us that pretty much you can expect things instantly. If, you, if, you, if you're going to be the... Um, or you don't have to work hard to get anything and likewise we expect people to change instantaneously well I don't know about you I've been a Christian 25 years and I have not changed instantaneously like it's been a journey of God teaching me and walking with me and some things there's been miraculous intervention but actually some of it is the hard slog of sanctification isn't it? It's not. And yet so often we get people who come into our projects and then maybe they come to know Jesus and we're surprised when their lifestyle doesn't change within six months. Or we're surprised that they go on making the same decisions. It's, oh, well, you know Jesus now. 
well, yeah, I know, but they're a six-month-old baby spiritually, aren't they? So, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent because I, I feel frustrated sometimes when I hear people talk about adults who've grown up in poverty with an expectation that they should bear no relation to the childhood they had, even though they'd never speak to a child like that. And I think we need to be more careful, if I'm honest, myself very much included, in thinking through some of the ways we treat people and just trying to like understand people's stories and where they've come from and why it might be a harder journey for them than it was for me or was for you. The um, leaked Yellowhammer document about the likely consequences of a no-deal Brexit um, says that the poorest will be hit hardest. So whatever you think about Brexit, and it, you know, in what, it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether you, you want to leave the EU or whether you want to remain, God has called us to care about people facing poverty and we're being told by a document that is a government document that says this is the likely outcome, not the worst case scenario, but the likely outcome of a no-deal Brexit. Even if you want a no-deal Brexit, it doesn't mean you, you should then not care about this, the people who are going to be hardest hit. And I'm sure if you're in this seminar, you, you do care. The UN Special Rapporteur's report on poverty in the UK says that almost all studies have shown that the UK economy will be worse off because of Brexit in the immediate term, with consequences for inflation, real wages and consumer prices. One in six people referred to a Trussell Trust food bank is currently in work, and we are seeing that statistic rise and rise and rise. Whatever you think of politics, whatever you think of Brexit... It seems to be the case that the likely outcome of Brexit, with or without a deal, is that it's going to get harder for those in poverty at first. It might get better further on, but at first it's going to get harder. And that's why our churches need to prepare. And like I said, for many of us, our churches are doing more than we've ever done before. There's also, though, the prophetic. It's possible to do that. You can quite easily, and um, she stood up on the stage last night, I think it was, and brought a prophetic word. Um, Ginny, with a track record of prophesying things that come to pass, and many other people who have that kind of prophetic track record as well, have been prophesying actually for a few years that we are going to face a time that is going to be harder than the austerity of the last 10 years that we've been through as a nation. Now, this isn't something for us to be afraid of, this is something God tells us so that we can prepare for it. I love the fact that God does that. He always speaks to his church. He always brings prophetic um, foresight so that it's not so that we live in fear of what's about to come. That It's so that we prepare for what is about to come. So how do we do that? How do we prepare? In my church, we've just written a, so a social action strategy for the future. So we've just written a strategy um, that basically outlines not just how we're going to enlarge what we do, but also how we're going to get care for the poor more in the very DNA of our church. Because actually you can have projects and still have churches that at their heart don't really care for the poor. It's possible to do that. You can do that. You can have churches where you can be running loads and loads of projects, but... 20% of your church are involved in the projects and the other 80% are just really, really glad the other 20% are doing it so they don't have to. It's true, isn't it? In, in some of our churches, it's like that. So we need to actually be thinking strategically because a lot of people who um, get social action projects off the ground are pioneers. They're visionaries. 
I'm a bit like that myself. I, I can get something off the ground, but then leave me with it for a couple of years and I don't know what to do anymore. So it's about knowing ourselves, knowing what skills we've got, knowing what gifts we've got, and making sure that our social action doesn't just have visionaries, but also has pastors. Because actually one of the reasons I think we see people save through our projects and then not stick in our churches is because we don't pastor them well. And that's because we tend to think, well, you're the care for the poor person. You know, you're the social activist. You're the one who keeps banging on about God's heart for the poor. You pastor them. But actually, it's different gifting. Some of the best people in my church for pastoring are those you'll never hear of because they're those who can walk a steady journey with someone over 10 or 20 years. They're people who can invest their time week in, week out in the same people and do that. And we need those people to come and attach themselves to kind of our care for the poor. And not, it's not a separate thing. It's not like you go and pastor those people over there and then we'll do the um, care for the poor here. Actually, no, we need really amazing pastors who will walk the long journey with people who get saved through the projects that we're leading. We also need strategic people, people who can write a strategy, people who can see, well, actually, we might say as a church that we're really concerned about poverty, but we never preach about it. You know, someone left my church a couple of years ago because they couldn't read the words on the screen because their eyesight was failing. They didn't need to leave the church. We could have, we could have done something. It seems that that's a crazy reason to leave a church, isn't it? Because you, you can't, because surely with the songs, they were like, well, I can't sing the songs anymore because I don't know the words to all the new songs. We should have been better. We should have given them a... I was going to say a CD, which I think just makes me sound really old. I don't know. But, you know, we could have given them a playlist where they could have found it. And we've got people who can't read in our church because they're illiterate rather than because their eyesight's failing. What are we doing to think about how do we do Sundays or midweek life in a way that's engaging and accessible to those from poorer backgrounds? You know, like I said, I was saved out of poverty and it was a real shock to my system getting saved into a middle-class church because I'd never done things like eat dinner around people's houses on a midweek evening before. That is not normal behaviour. It is now for me. But, you know, like it just in my life, that would never have happened before as a Christian. And it's interesting that I tell this story quite often about how I'd never seen food served up with like meat in one bowl, vegetables in another um, potatoes in another and then you serve yourself I, I'd never seen food served like that so when I used to go to dinner at people's houses when I first got saved I had no clue what to do I literally did it used to fill me with dread that moment where they'd say you go first because you're the guest and I'd always try and go no 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 you go first thinking if they go first I can copy them because I thought I don't know if you like are you supposed to take the food in a particular order like genuine question I still don't know the answer to that um, like but also, you want to, I was aware, like, I, I've got to be polite, right? So I want to take enough food that I look keen on the food that's been cooked for me, but not so much food that I look like I'm really greedy. And who knows what the amount is that you're supposed to actually take. And these things would fill me with dread. And I tell this story a lot now, but the first time I told it was two years ago. And one of the pastors who used to have me around his house quite a lot was there, and he heard it. And he came up afterwards, and he was like, were you talking about us? And I said, yeah, among others, but yeah, you, your house would have been one of those. He's like, I've never even thought about it. And this was 20 years after I used to hang out at their house. And in 20 years, I'm wondering how many people has he had for dinner? 
who he genuinely wanted to care for and wanted to be kind to and show God's kindness towards, you know, he was, he was, it was a nice thing that they invited me for dinner, but with no idea that just from being from a completely different background, I'd have no idea how to relate or interact in that environment. And it caused me deep anxiety and there are still things today, it's interesting, in church life that cause me anxiety. So even now, when I go to dinner at people's houses, I know that if you get there early enough, you should offer to help. And so I'll, I'll do that because I want to be polite. I want to be a nice, polite Christian. Um, and so I'll say, like, can I help? And then there's that moment of dread where I wonder what are they actually going to ask me to do. And I just hope it's something that I'll know how to do. And that's after being in middle-class church for 25 years also so we need to be thinking how are the ways we behave what are our traditions and our norms doing when if we want to see more and more people saved from a poorer background we've really got to think about everything we do we've got to think about the words we put on screens on a Sunday we've got to think about this is ironic coming from me now that I've been talking for 45 minutes but where else do you sit and listen to someone talk for 45 minutes pretty much the only place that really happens is university and only 27% of the population go to university and yet in evangelical churches in this country 81% have a university degree we are missing a huge section of society and we need to think about what we need to do differently not what they need to do differently it's really really important or we won't see more and more people come into our churches I think just for another five minutes, I'll give you a few things that I think we need to do to prepare for the poverty that's coming. We've got to make sure we really know our local areas. Often we want to set up projects based on what we feel like doing or we feel God's leading us to do. And, and there's a place for that. But sometimes that means we want to set up projects that just duplicate what someone else is already doing or that the town doesn't need or the city doesn't need. It's really, really important to make sure that we get to know what our community actually needs. And the only way we do that is by getting out and about and mixing with people who don't come to church, don't come to our church, don't go to other churches in the town, and asking them, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you think the biggest problems facing our community are? So we did this deliberately in Hastings a few years ago when we decided we wanted care for the poorest as part of our vision as a church, a key part of our vision as a church. We went and asked people... Um, we asked, you know, our friends who aren't Christians, but also um, had conversations in the pub. Went and met with the local MP, the leader of the local council, the chief of police, the chief of the fire service. You might think, what's the fire service got to contribute? Well, they know loads about what's going on in the community because they're in people's homes doing fire home safety tests and things like that all the time. And they're in businesses checking that everything's um, as it should be in terms of fire safety as well. So we met with the fire safety, we met with um, the head of the biggest housing association and we asked them questions like, what do you think is the biggest problem affecting our community? And what do you think churches like ours can do? And we didn't promise we'd do it. And actually in those meetings, we didn't offer our, our opinion on anything. The whole point was just to get their opinion, which honestly shocked some of them. One of them kept saying to me, we haven't got any money to give you. And I was like, no, no, that's fine. I'm not here for your money. And when I got up to leave after 45 minutes, he said, well, so you really don't want any money then? I was like, no, no, I don't. I said all along, I don't want money. I just wanted to know what you think. And he's like, no one ever comes to ask me what I think. I was like, you're the leader of the council. Why don't people want to know what you think? He's like, I don't know. But he said, no one, no one just comes and asks. No one ever meets with me just to ask what I think. They either want something from me, like whether it's, you know, something to be changed in the local area or they want money. And I, say, I said, no, I don't. I just wanted your opinion. And then he said, well, how are you going to do? If you do any of the things I've suggested, how are you going to do them? I'm like, it's all right. We got it. 
He looked at me like I was mad. Like, seriously, he couldn't comprehend a church saying, we'll pay for our own stuff, like, don't worry about it. It was Because his only experience up until that point had been of, like, kind of uh, roof funds with thermometers outside the church building. So there's an opportunity, actually, not just to get to know your local area, but to actually make a real impact on those that you talk to about what's going on. And what was really good was, so we met with all these decision makers, and they all said different things. Uh, not all of them said different things, but, you know, there was a range of answers they gave. But it meant that we were then able to email them all individually, thank them for their time tell them about the range of answers we'd had obviously um and then a couple of months later to email them all again saying either you suggested this and I'm really pleased to tell you we're going to do it or you didn't suggest this but someone else did and now we're going to do it and so it's just an opportunity to build those relationships with local decision makers which means that they now know if they've got a problem and they don't know how to solve it they can call the local church and we'll help them I could tell you story after story about how that's happened. I won't for the sake of time. But about how we've just had phone call after phone call saying we've got this situation and no one seems to be able to help. Could the church help? And often when that does happen, when those calls come, my, in my head I'm thinking I don't know if we'll help or not, but I'm going to try. I don't, you know, A lot of it's just going with it as they approach us, as they turn to the church. And these are decision makers who, let me tell you, 10 years ago wanted nothing whatsoever to do with churches. These are people, even individuals who are quite hardened atheists who don't like churches, especially happy clappy ones like ours, um, and they, they don't want to work with us. And then suddenly they're seeing all the good we're doing and they're seeing that we care about what they think about our community and that we want to do some good, not just what we want to do, but what they might want us to do as well. And it's changing that how they think about the church, which ultimately, hopefully, will change how they think about Jesus. And that's what we're going for, obviously. Um, I mentioned stockpiling. I think that's going to become something over the coming two months. We're going to hear a lot more about that. We have an opportunity to get worse. Don't just save it for yourself differently, which means if you feel like I really want to stockpile, then please stockpile for other people at the same time. If you're going to stockpile, don't just do it for yourself. Do it for other people at the same time. Um, I would argue, actually, why not stockpile for your local food bank or your soup kitchen or your night shelter? instead of stockpiling for yourself. Because do you know what? We, we worship the God who owns everything. We don't need to live in fear. We might face inconvenience, but we don't need to live in fear. You know, I think about this. My, my biggest thing is when there's a petrol crisis, you know, when they have a fuel crisis, and I'm like, I want to get there straight away and make sure I get the fuel. It's such a selfish attitude, though, isn't it? Because it's all about I need to make sure I'm okay. Actually, we have an opportunity to maybe do it differently and to not be those who panic but to set an example to those around us by saying, actually, let me get a tank of fuel for you. If you need your car to get to work, it will massively inconvenience me to not use my car for the next few weeks while this lasts, but maybe you need it more. Maybe you've got small kids. Maybe You know what I mean? There's just an opportunity for us to maybe do it differently. Um, even with money, if you're thinking, well, I'm going to save up some money now if you can, if you're able to do that, um, because we're being told things are going to get worse... Don't just save it. Make sure that you're saving it with a view to knowing, God, this is your money. And if you let me spend it on myself, thank you. But if you don't, then that's okay because it's not mine anyway. It's yours. It's just a different way to look at it. And, and you know, I've got loads of non-Christian friends who are talking about stockpiling and saving and stuff at the minute. And I'm saying to them, like, I'm not going to do it the way you're going to do it. Because I believe in Jesus and, and he, he owns everything. And I don't, I'm not going to live in fear I'm going to try and make sure I'm providing for people who've got less than I've got. Opening up our homes is another one. I think um, 
I had someone come up to me here last night and tell me that a blog I wrote a while ago um, has led to a, um, a shift in their whole church. So I wrote this blog a while ago about how for 46 days in a row I ate with friends. I did not use my oven for 46 days in a row. I have incredible friends and I invite myself out an awful lot. Um, but, you know, I got, I got fed, basically. And someone came up to me last night. She didn't know me. She came up to me in the toilets and said, are you Natalie? Um, I was just thinking she might be in here. I don't know. But um, are you Natalie? And said, you wrote that blog about being fed for 46 days. As a result, my whole church, every member of my church has committed to having people around to dinner between now and Christmas. Well, that's great, isn't it? I mean, as many of us do that all the time, but for those who don't, for a whole church to say we're committing to be more active in this between now and Christmas, to see who we can bless by having them around for dinner, we have an opportunity, actually, to invite people in to our own homes, which is a lot harder, granted, than doing a shift at a food bank or a night shelter or whatever, but actually it's something I believe God is calling us increasingly to do because our homes are also not our own spaces, God has given them to us and blessed us with homes that we might bless others with them as well. I think I'll finish there to take Q&A. I feel like there's loads more I could say, but I do want to give time to questions. So um, I've got um, someone down here who will run about with a mic. So if you've got a question, why don't you put your hand up and I'll do my best to answer it. Okay, the guy in the yellow T-shirt. Yeah, I just wonder if you could sort of expand on the fact that we're all very middle class here. <laughs> we seem to be, Natalie. And um, that, we've, therefore, we've got a, probably a range of skills within ourselves. And um, the, we all speak English, or, or the vast majority of us are English speakers, first language. And yet the people that are in poverty, often they don't have that. So actually going along with them to certain things can be hugely helpful. I went with an Iranian guy who'd just got his refugee status and the, the, the receptionist at the housing options was run off her feet. There was no, no Eritrean guy sat next to me trying to fill in forms that he didn't understand. The Iranian didn't understand the forms. The interviewer used words like eligibility criteria, uh, criteria which, which nobody would understand. And, and just somebody being there makes a huge difference. Yeah, sorry, I didn't recognise you with the blinding lights. If you want to talk to someone about how to help refugees and asylum seekers, do talk to Dave, and he's got a stand in the hub, R2C2 as well. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think our skills are really important, whatever skills you've got. I mean, basically, I think that whatever God has done in your life, whatever you've been through, especially if you've been through difficult times, but whatever skills you've got, whatever qualifications you've got, God wants to use it all. None of it is to be wasted, Like, none of it at all. So I mentioned about my own personal debt. Well, I went on to then learn how to do a budgeting course so that I could be someone who taught the budgeting course in my own church. Now, if you'd said that to someone 20 years ago who knew me, they'd have laughed at you if you told them that I was ever going to help other people get out of debt. But that is exactly what God does. God loves to take the very things that we have been rubbish at ourselves or we've been through difficulties ourselves or we've it just feels like a weakness for us and to use it for the good of other people so if you've been through anything difficult I would say ask God how do you want to redeem it for the good of other people but likewise if you've got skills even if your only skill is that you speak English actually you could be massively helpful to people who don't speak English and actually part of the issue around the whole Brexit thing has been um a kind of pushing away 
foreigners. It's, you know, in some of our communities where there's been this us and them mentality. Do you know, whether it's with foreigners, whether it's with people um, on benefits, whether it's with people who just live in a part of town that you don't like or your part of town doesn't like, God calls us to be reconcilers and bridge builders, not to be those who put up barriers, those who break down barriers, those who break down dividing walls of hostility. So again, it doesn't matter what your politics is and it doesn't matter what you think about the EU. Actually, you're still to be a bridge builder with those around you. You're still anyone you encounter. So I think that's an excellent point. Please, yeah, it's not just about your money. It's not just about your homes. It's about your skills and whatever God's done in your life. And him, he, he will use anything he has put in you and everything he's put in you. Have we got any other questions? Oh, sorry, Sheena, to make you come all the way over here. This happened to me yesterday in a seminar. I was the one with the mic and I had to run from side. It's, I don't know why. It's always someone on the opposite side who asks the next question. Um, I think I'm right in saying that um, the Joseph Rantree Trust define poverty as relative to some sort of mean or average. And I find myself half-heartedly, think, hard-heartedly thinking, but all that means is, as we get richer, that just goes up. And surely the proper definition is some sort of absolute. Um, and I recognise that as hard-heartedness, but it still happens. No, can, can, you, can you help me in terms of unpacking why yeah. that's a, a proper and legitimate way to look at it? Um, I would say it isn't, but let me, yeah, this is a really, really important question. So for a really long time, poverty in this country has been measured by if your household has less than 60% of the national average, which means obviously as people get richer, well, there are still people who have less, you can have less than 60% and still be really rich if everyone's millionaires, you know. So that measure was ditched by, I think, the coalition government in 2010, but or somewhere in the coalition government's term, they ditched that measure for exactly that reason you're saying, that actually all it tells us is how people are in relation to each other, not whether people are rich or poor. There is a brilliant new poverty measure that has been developed by people on all sides of the political spectrum. Uh, an organisation called the Social Metrics Commission. Um, it's headed up by Philippa Stroud, who some of you would know because she's in New Frontiers. She's a Conservative peer. The Joseph Roundtree Foundation and other very left-leaning charities uh, part, have been part of it. And actually what Philippa did, she deliberately brought together people from all across the political spectrum and said, we will not propose a new way to measure poverty until we can all agree because if we can't all agree we won't ever get it adopted by the government because you know it will just be opposed um they spent two years thrashing it out and every time someone disagreed in the room of organizations they would not move on from that aspect of it until they could get unanimous decision you can look it up online the social metrics commission the new poverty measure the government announced I'm trying to think when it was. In, in December, when Amber Rudd became Work and Pension Secretary, um, Jubilee Plus met with her. One of the things we asked her to do was adopt this new poverty measure um, because it can get cross-party support. So we're like, adopt it now. Because if you don't measure it, then it doesn't really show that you care about it, was basically what I said to her. It's, the government can say it cares about poverty. Any government can say it cares about poverty all it wants. If it's not actually measuring it, it doesn't really, does it? So... Um, 
we urged her, others obviously were urging her to adopt it. And I think it was January or February, I can't remember exactly, but they announced earlier this year that they're adopting it um, as a new measure um, in the experimental phase. And then, But that measure is really good because it's not... So under the old measure, your household income could be um, under 60%, but you might own five houses and your five houses wouldn't be taken into account. Or you might have extortionate childcare costs to just break at that 60% that meant that actually you're way below the poverty line because your income it doesn't... Sort of solving the problems after they... ...measure takes all of that into account. It looks at your assets, which means that under the new measure... Um, I think it's a few million elderly people are now not classed as being in poverty anymore because they're asset rich, even though their income is low. What it has done is put more children in poverty by the new measure. Obviously not put them in, I mean calculated them in, please understand what I'm saying there, <laughs> that's clumsy. Um, because it shows that in, yeah, things like childcare costs and whatever. So, so that is a really good measure, which is Jubilee Plus. We are urging the government to adopt. Like I say, they're in the experimental phase now, but we will be pushing them, whether, whatever government it is, we will be pushing them to adopt this measure um, as a really, really good way of defining poverty in our nation. So hopefully that helps. I think there was another question on this side. Thanks. Um, you've been quite careful to not take political sides, but you also kind of mentioned, obviously, the impact of no deal Brexit and universal credit. How much as churches can we and should we be um, advocating and challenging things politically and not just sort of solving the problems? Yeah, I think that's, a, again, a really important question because we can do a lot on the ground to help people facing crisis but if the systems never change, then we'll just be doing that forever. And there's that Desmond Tutu quote, isn't it? That um, at some point we've got to stop pulling bodies out of the river and go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place. I think political engagement as churches is fundamentally important. I think where it gets messy is when you become party political. So I have worked for a politician in the past and I have worked with politicians on all sides... Well, three parties. I've worked with politicians in three of the major political parties. Um, and the thing is, if we don't conduct ourselves well in this, then we actually lose any ability to influence things for change. So I find it perfectly possible to work for one politician in the past and then to interact with politicians on the other side in a way that is honourable and respectful and to ask them for change, to have difficult conversations. You know, I've sat down with Amber Rudd a few times and said to her, universal credit is a good idea conceptually, but the execution of it is pushing people into poverty. And I don't mince my words with her. I'm not afraid to say it strongly to her, but I can do that whilst... A, fr a friend of mine has a phrase, leave the other person intact. And I can be kind and polite and respectful to Amber Rudd when talking to her about universal credit, even though we fundamentally disagree on some of the aspects of it. Because I, I, I'm there representing Jesus, and I don't think Jesus would be going in being horrible and unkind. You know, when I read some of the abuse some politicians I disagree with get on Twitter, it's awful. And sometimes it's from Christians. I saw a Christian 
Um, not in Christ Central, you'll be pleased to know. Um, but a Christian I know who wrote to Amber Rudd and s- when Theresa May was still Prime Minister and said, why don't you try and get your, wi- your leader chucked out a window? I'm like, there's no place for a Christian to be saying something like that on social media, in person, behind the scenes, anywhere. Because actually, every person is made in the image of God. So we must relate to people as made in the image of God. Which means I can fundamentally disagree with you, disagree with a politician, disagree with a non-Christian friend of mine, disagree with my own family about Brexit, about universal credit, about any number of political issues And I can still love you and respect you and treat you well. And I think what we're finding at Jubilee Plus is that when we're engaging with politicians, sometimes when they know you disagree with them and then you shock them by being kind to them, you actually get further than you would have got otherwise. So actually, we're finding we're being able to influence quite heavily, actually partly because of the way we're conducting ourselves. We're making sure we really know our stuff, our facts, our figures, um, our stories, our... um, uh, what change are we actually asking for? So we're not just complaining about things. We're specifically saying, please, could you change this? And could you change this? And could you change this? We've got about five things we're asking um, on universal credit specifically to be changed. We'd have other things around um, immigration that we'd want to see changed. But in all these things, if we conduct ourselves... You know, the Bible says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be evident to all... And there's a way to engage politically which is kind and Christ-like and compassionate to the person you're talking to, even if you can't stand what they're telling you or what they're saying. You know, I've had a politician come to me and tell me that the only reason food banks are seeing so many increases is because people now know they can go go to them and get free food. I think that's a disgusting viewpoint, but I can still honour the person who has that viewpoint. so, yeah, I think engagement at all levels is really important. Oh, a few hands. Um, we've only got about three minutes left, so I'll try and give shorter answers. But who had their hands? We'll just take these final, final three questions. Yeah, so yours and yours and this one we're about to take now. I was wondering if you're seeing a change in attitude to debt As a teacher, it frightens me that students are sold student loans on the basis that it'll only cost them the price of a Costa coffee a day or something like that. And whether we're sort of, through student loans and the like, sort of putting debt acceptance nearly on people to then build up even more debt because students with £50,000 debt just seems immoral to me. Yeah, I mean, I think... um, I think making debt a part of life is something that is happening across the board. I mean, even, sorry to mention universal credit again, but even with that, the whole thing of government saying, no, you don't have to wait five weeks to get your money. You can have an advance. Well, that's a loan. And that is saying to people, you're going to be in debt for the next 12 months at least. Um, I think the fact that we do, I would never, I went to university in the end, um, but I never would have gone if I'd had to pay tuition fees. It just wouldn't have worked for me. It would have never been a possibility. And I think we are in a culture that thinks debt is perfectly acceptable, perfectly reasonable, um, and just a part of life. And I think that's deeply worrying. And again, something the church needs to speak out on um, quite a lot and, and is doing and it's interesting because you know you don't always know about these things but and I don't know that I have the freedom to say who but I, I know 
one guy in particular who God has clearly positioned him as a Christian to influence the world of money and debt and how we're banking in this country. And he's just doing that kind of behind the scenes, but an incredibly powerful position. And bringing exactly that point, he, he's talking to both banks and government and churches about this whole issue of how do we handle money and how do we do better on debt so that we've got fewer people in debt in the first place and we don't just see like consumer credit as just part of life and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's really important. So I'm just trying to give shorter answers because I know we've got one more question here and then I said this gentleman as well. So there's a woman there. Thank you. Um, in terms of projects, say, like Food Bank, where often it feels that in our volunteering roles and as a church, we're kind of giving to the point of need, um, but there's so much more beyond that in terms of the complexity of the need of those individuals. You mentioned around sort of um, having visionaries and pastoral skills. Any sort of bits of advice for us as the church as to how we can help come alongside those people outside of, say, that project work when maybe they're not ready to, to be in communi- uh, sort of community with the church? And so how do we, how do you, any examples of where that's worked well for you guys? So a big part of our social action strategy that I've just written is exactly on that, is how do we build better bridges between um, the projects that we're running, that most of which are crisis support, and the church, and kind of engaging and finding community with us. And it's just things where you know, we've just, because um, we've been so busy doing the stuff, we've not necessarily had the time to sit down and think strategically about things. So we run Baby Basics. Some of you will have heard of that. It's a project where... Um, a pregnant woman can be referred by a healthcare professional if they know that she's going to struggle when her newborn baby arrives. And one of the reasons we wanted to run that project is because we run um, pregnancy crisis counselling and and you're thinking if we are counselling people and trying to encourage people to have babies when they get pregnant, then supporting them when they have those babies is absolutely fundamental. It would seem to me wrong to encourage people to have their babies and then not support them in any way if they choose to go ahead and do that if they're in a crisis pregnancy. So Baby Basics, we launched as a direct kind of response to that. But then we're like, well, we've got a parent and toddler group. And these women who are having newborn babies that they um, are going to struggle to provide for probably aren't in any sort of community, like family, or have no support network around them. So coming to our parent and toddler group would be great, except that we charge a fee for it. So now we're putting a year's free membership in the Moses basket that we give to the pregnant women so they can come to the parent and toddler group. With the food bank, we recognise that we're seeing spikes in like holiday hunger. Um, so we've started running Make Lunch, which is um, a hot meals where the whole family comes in the school holidays to have a hot meal. And all the volunteers sit down with the family. So it's not like us and them. It's like, oh, we're all having lunch together now. Everyone's kind of pitched in in fascination rather than with bitterness. But again, that's a relational way to do it. Um, A night shelter, my church doesn't run it, but I volunteer at it. One of the things that's the best about it is if you do an evening shift there, you all have dinner together and you all like do crosswords together and you play games together. So again, it's, it's finding the ways in which we can do things that doesn't make it just a project where we can keep people at arm's length, but makes it, it might still be a project, but we're in it together and we can actually become friends and have a relationship. I think it's also taking the time to decide I'm going to become friends with people who come through. So making that decision to actually, if someone comes into your food bank saying they've got kids and you've got kids, say, why don't I meet you in the park uh, in a couple of days and we'll just do some stuff with the kids. You know, like there are, there are ways, I think... 
Projects have enabled us to keep the poorest at arm's length to a certain extent, rather than actually become friends with people from different backgrounds. And I know that my life has been enriched as someone who was saved out of relative poverty by mixing with middle-class people, although I joke about it a lot now. I know that my life's enriched because I've mixed with people. I've got a friend who um, is very, very wealthy. And when we talk about our childhoods, it, it's with curiosity and fascination rather than with... And do you know what I mean? Because it's like, wow, isn't it? It's just interesting how different our backgrounds, but we can learn stuff from each other. And I think also it's about humility. It's about recognising that everyone's made in the image of God and reflects him in a way that you don't. Um, and you reflect him in a way that I don't and so on. Which means that if I'm spending time with people who are from a poorer background, it may seem like I'm all about I'm going to teach them so much or I'm going to mentor them or whatever. But actually, my experience is every time I spend time with people that I think I'm going to do that to, I learn way more from them than they do from me. I just think, hands down, like in terms of even faith-filled um, obedience to God. Uh, there was a woman I thought I'd mentor her for the last year. I just Her obedience to God makes me look like I'm not even a Christian. Honestly, it does. God asked her to do outrageous things. Um, obviously, he doesn't think they're outrageous, but I do. Um, he asked her to do outrageous things, and she obeys instantly. I hardly ever obey instantly on the big things I always need persuading and cajoling and the Holy Spirit's work do you know what I mean so I think there's a whole load of things like that I think it's also though making sure our churches are places where people from different backgrounds feel welcomed that's a huge thing for me and I think that means looking at everything so in our strategy we've looked at everything what's our kids work like what's our youth work like what's our worship like what's our preaching like what are we even yeah I've used it today but I try not to on the whole use the words the poor it's difficult because the words the poor are in the Bible. But as someone who grew up in poverty, I don't want you to call me the poor. So it's trying to look at every aspect of church life and see how can we do it differently. There's loads more I could say on that, but for the sake of time, we've got one more question here and then we'll finish. So Sheena, the gentleman down on the second row here has a question. Uh, thank you for, for the presentation. I found that helpful. I just wanted me to contribute on the aspect of stockpiling. What you mentioned about uh, stockpiling, I think it just uh, uh, maybe helped me and encouraged me looking at Joseph. And I wanted just to make a comment through uh, the parable that Jesus made to, actually in Luke chapter 12, when he saw uh, people who were asking him, and he said that the the ground of a certain rich man yielded in abundant harvest. Then he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up for them things for themselves, but it is not, but is not rich toward God. I just wanted to just make that uh, comment to say I found that helpful in terms of where we are going, uh, the fear that maybe grips us as Christians that we cannot see beyond ourselves, but uh, to really look out uh, for 
other people and have that Joseph mentality to, to bring solution. So thank you so much for the presentation. Thank you. I think just a final comment on that, the whole thing about Joseph. So the prophetic words I mentioned that talk about us going into a deeper time of austerity have used Joseph as an example and said that it might look like for the last 10 years in this nation, we've been in the lean years and we might think the fat years are coming. But the prophetic is that those years we've just had are the fat years and it's the lean years that are coming, which if we didn't know God is a terrifying prospect, isn't it, in many ways. But we do know God, so we're not to live in fear. And we are to do what God told Joseph to do, which is stockpile collectively for the common good. So don't stockpile for yourself, like you've just helpfully read that from the Bible. It's not about think. It's not thinking, I need to make sure I'm okay. And for many of us, what I worry about, because I see it in my own heart too, is it's not a worry, will I survive? It's a worry, will my comfort be disrupted? Actually, that's what the honest truth is. Because most of us know we'd survive. Like, you know, most of us are all right. And so it's, it's not... We, we might tell ourselves, oh, I need to get in food because I'm worried I'm not going to be able to get access to it. But actually, most of us know we'll be all right. And that really is just a way of wanting to keep things as we know them currently um, and not have to maybe eat different food or um, eat less food or not go out for dinner. Or do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's different. So I think, though, the biblical model through Joseph is very much let's gather everything into the barns so that we can distribute it to everyone who has need. And I think so. I'm not saying don't stockpile. I'm just saying do stockpile for your food bank or, you know, equivalent project. Um, but I think we'll finish it up there. Thank you very much for coming along. I hope it's been helpful. And.